0: out there. How are you doing? My name is Dan Forrest and uh, we're nearing the end of our sermon series on the alphabet psalm, Psalm 119. Jonathan Chan and I have been preaching through the psalm two letter sections at a time and this week we're going to be looking at Simek and Ian. Uh, now Jonathan likes to show video clips from his favorite animated television show and today we're going to watch a clip from my favorite cartoon so please enjoy. You mean outside? That's where the dumpster is, yes? I don't know, Squidward. It's kind of dark out there. But I thought you liked the night shift. You're right. for the crusty crab. <laughs> Pizza <Piece of> cake. <laughs> Well, as shown in this clip, sometimes it's not that easy taking out the trash, but we've got to get it out of our house and our place of businesses because trash can build up and stink up the place. It can attract rodents and bugs, and it can just totally ruin our space. Well, for our sermon today, we will join the psalmist in using the metaphor of trash to refer to all that is wicked, evil, and unjust. Our world is piling up with trash, and what is God going to do about it? Just when we think one piece of trash is removed, more trash takes its place. 2020 is a perfect example of this. You know, we kind of started with a lot of things, but then the global pandemic hit. And then we had racism and police brutality, wildfires, hurricanes, opioid crisis in Vancouver here and around the world political corruption in all kinds of countries and even murder hornets. This is not a good time. God, when are you going to take out the trash? Well, a friend once asked me, Jesus died and rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. And for what? The world seems worse now than it did then. What has Jesus really accomplished? Well, this is a great question and... I believe it's one the psalmist also raises in Psalm 119. So let's take a look at our passage for today and try to understand what is going on with God and evil. Hey, bye Spongebob. Let's go to the Bible. Psalm 119 verses 1 to 13. I hate double-minded people, but I love your law. You are my refuge and my shield. I have put my hope in your word. Away from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commands of my God. Sustain me, my God, according to your promise, and I will live. Do not let my hopes be dashed. Uphold me, and I will be delivered. I will always have regard for your decrees. You reject all who stray from your decrees, for their delusions come to nothing. All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. Therefore, I love your statutes. My flesh trembles in fear of you. I stand in awe of your laws. I have done what is righteous and just. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Ensure your servant's well-being. Do not let the arrogant oppress me. My eyes fail looking for your salvation, looking for your righteous promise. Deal with your servant according to your love, and teach me your decrees. I am your servant. Give me discernment that I may understand your statutes. It is time for you to act, Lord. Your law is being broken. Because I love your commands more than gold, more than pure gold, and because I consider all your precepts right, I hate every wrong path. Well, the psalmist repeatedly explains here how he has done what is righteous and just, and how he follows the path of God's word with hope and with awe. But he also expresses his frustration with those who don't follow God's word, the evildoers, the wicked, and the oppressors. In verses one twenty in verse one twenty-three we read, My eyes fail, looking for your salvation, looking for your righteous promise. And in verse 126 we read: It is time for you to act, Lord. Your law is being broken. Where is God? Why isn't he doing anything? Well, the psalmist explains what God does with evil and wickedness in verses 118 and 119. You reject all who stray from your decrees, for their delusions come to nothing. All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. I want to look at that last verse with some other translations. Here's the message. You reject earth's wicked as so much rubbish, or the New Living Translation, You skim off the wicked of the earth like scum. Here's the common English Bible. You dispose of all the wicked people on earth like waste. God takes out the wicked like he's taking out the trash. We see these ideas and this imagery throughout the Bible. Evil and wickedness will not last forever. God will one day fully get rid of it and restore the universe to peace and shalom No more evil, no more suffering, no more trash. But once again, why is there still so much trash around? My eyes fail looking for clean floors. It's time for you to finally take out the trash, God. Well, this leads us to wonder though, why is there even trash in the first place? Why did God create a world where evil exists? Well, unfortunately, the Bible doesn't really give us an explanation for why evil is in the world. Well, you, may, you might say, well, yes, it does, Dan. It says that in the garden of, Eden, garden of Eden, evil entered the world when Adam and Eve first disobeyed God and ate from the forbidden tree. Yeah, but for anyone who's ever taught Sunday school, you know the question that's going to come next. But why is there a snake in the garden in the first place to tempt them? The snake is clearly evil. Where did he come from? Well, we get some hints from other parts in the Bible that maybe he's a fallen angel, but you know, that's actually not clear. And that still doesn't answer the question of how an angel could fall and become evil. So I think it's safe to say the Bible was not written to give us the origin story of evil, as much as we'd love to know that. And another question that always comes up is, Why doesn't God just wipe out all evil instantaneously? If we know that he's going to do it in the future one day, why doesn't he just do it now? Just get it over with. Why does he allow evil to continue to exist alongside us? Unfortunately, once again, the Bible isn't very clear about that either. There are some hints, like the parable of the weeds and the wheat. Jesus is telling this parable and he likens the kingdom of God to a man sowing good seeds in his farm. But while he sleeps, his enemy sows bad seeds into the crop. And as the wheat grows, the weeds also grow around them. And the servants ask the owner if they should rip up the weeds. But the owner says, no, because while you are pulling up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest so there's a mystery that's going on here for some reason if god removes all the evil in the world it's going to end up damaging the good that's being done in this world as well like i said unfortunately the bible is just not clear on the origin of evil or why it continues to exist and for me that actually maybe leaves an answer that it's not important Or perhaps just not explainable. Perhaps God doesn't think it's necessary for us to understand all these deep mysteries. Or I personally believe that it's probably too complicated for our limited finite minds and experiences to understand. In this this world, it's kind of like we're a baby in the womb. Not knowing what the outside world looks like, what's going on in the outside world. We just can't understand it because we're limited. But the Bible is clear about one thing. The Bible is very clear about the fate of evil and how God is dealing with it in our present world. Well, in order to understand how God deals with evil and wickedness in this world, I'm going to look at two people in the Bible who dealt with evil in very different ways. The first person is Samson, perhaps the strongest man in the Bible. Look at those arms. Reminds me of uh, someone I know. Yeah, like that. Okay, Samson was blessed by God to be a judge among the Hebrews in the promised land of Canaan before the Hebrews fully occupied the land and before they were a nation ruled by a king. And the judges, they weren't judges like Judge Judy with a gown and a gavel and a courtroom. Instead, they were more like Judge Dredd. In the streets, he's the judge jury, and executioner all in one. The biblical judges were typically military leaders who fought violently for Israel against the evil Philistines. And Samson is a really complicated character. And the whole book of judges is complicated. In fact, I say that the Philistines were evil when really the Hebrews were also evil. In the land of canaan they repeatedly cheated on god by worshiping canaanite idols they were just like the two-faced people the psalmist hates in our passage saying that they love god but also loving other gods they weren't following god's laws and so god would raise up the philistines to punish them to discipline them and then they would repent and they would cry out to god and he would have mercy on them and he would raise up a judge To deliver them from evil but throughout the book of judges this is a recurring cycle it doesn't happen just once the cycle would happen over and over and over again with samson being the 12th and final judge now you would think that these judges were righteous individuals who followed god's laws and blessed those around them but samson was certainly not a righteous judge Samson repeatedly broke the Hebrew law, and he even broke the Nazarite vow that he had taken since he was born. For for starters, he married a non-Hebrew. He ate unclean honey from a corpse. He drank wine. He slept with prostitutes. He was arrogant, vengeful, and extremely selfish. This was the one person that God raised up to take out the trash, but in many ways, He himself was trash. After the incident with Delilah cutting his hair, Samson loses his strength and the Philistines capture him, gouging out his eyes and forcing him into slave labor. At a pagan festival, they bring him out of prison to entertain them and he asks to be propped up against the pillar so that he can get some support. And as Samson leans against these pillars, he cries out, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please God, strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Let me die with the Philistines, he cries out as he pushes the pillars apart. Samson's main role is to take out the trash, to deliver the Hebrews from evil. And with miraculous strength, he pushes the pillars apart, causing the the temple to collapse on himself and all the Philistine rulers, and all 3,000 Philistines who were in attendance. The Bible says that he killed more people at his death than while he lived. uh, Samson sacrificed himself to fulfill the role that God gave him. But you know what? I question if this was the way God wanted it to go down. Throughout his life, Samson seemed to care more about himself than other people, and he didn't really take God's law seriously. The prophet Micah says this in Micah 6 8 He has shown you, all people, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. I would say none of these things describe Samson, and yet God still used him to deliver the Hebrews from the oppression of the Philistines. But this deliverance isn't complete. This isn't the end of the Philistines, and this isn't the end of oppression for God's people. This is only a temporary solution. Samson takes out the trash, but soon it starts piling up again. Well, that's one figure in the Bible. Now we're going to look at another person and see how he dealt with evil. Like Samson, this person's birth was foretold by an angel. Like Samson, this person touched the unclean. He drank wine. He spoke in riddles. He sacrificed his love for others. And he died with his arms stretched out. Of course, I'm talking about Jesus. But his way of dealing with evil and wickedness is pretty much the exact opposite of Samson's. The way Samson deals with evil is reactive and selfish. Every time he acts against the Philistines, it's always to get revenge for something that they've done to him personally. And oftentimes he kind of instigated it in the first place and deserves what they've done to him. But anyways, he doesn't really seek and pursue justice. Whereas Jesus, he deals with evil proactively and selflessly. Jesus intentionally travels from town to town so people can bring their sick to be healed and the demon-possessed to be delivered. Jesus even travels into foreign places, healing the sick there, casting out the demons there, forgiving sins wherever he goes. And when he's faced with situations where a person deserves to be punished, his response is often compassion and grace. The woman caught in adultery, he humanizes her and sets her free the thieving tax collector zacchaeus well jesus calls zacchaeus by name and dines with him and this act of compassion causes zacchaeus to repent and repay what he's taken plus more there's also the centurion who is actively participating in the roman uh, oppression over israel well jesus talks to the centurion, and heals his suffering and paralyzed servant. In these cases, and in so many others, Jesus doesn't punish, but instead he heals, he restores, and he forgives. Samson's only method for dealing with evil is violence and killing, whereas Jesus' method is grace, compassion, generosity, and forgiveness. When Samson carries out his final great act of judgment, it's out of vengeance and spite. But Jesus' final blow to evil is carefully planned out and it's purposeful. He knows that he's going to Jerusalem to die. He knows that he will face all forms of evil there. And yet he still sets his eyes on the cross and heads straight for it. On the cross, Jesus experienced demonic persecution, political oppression, even personal insults, and of course all the suffering and pain. And the response that we want to see Jesus take is the response of Samson. Jesus kill them all. Rain down fire and judgment on evil and destroy it. And this is the response that Peter takes when Jesus is first arrested. Peter pulls out his sword and he lops off someone's ear. But Jesus rebukes Peter and he says to him don't you realize that I could ask my father for thousands of angels to protect us and he would send them instantly Jesus could call down the whole army of heaven to come down and destroy evil. He's the son of God He could save himself and come down from the cross but instead of responding to evil with violence and with more evil Jesus responds to evil with love. As Jesus hangs on the cross, he looks down on his killers and he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. This just doesn't seem right to us. This doesn't seem fair or just. This doesn't seem like God is rejecting those who stray from his decrees. It looks like he's accepting them. This doesn't seem like God is discarding the wicked of the earth like dross or disposing of them like waste. Instead of taking out the trash, it seems like God is recycling it and repurposing it. Instead of destroying evil with violence, Jesus is using grace to transform the wicked into the righteous. He's changing sick bodies and minds into healthy and whole bodies and minds. And he's taking relationships that were severely damaged, and he's restoring them. This is how God rids the world of evil. By transforming it into good. And it's our job as as God's people to join him in transforming evil in this world for good. You know, when my friend asked that question a long time ago, what did Jesus accomplish on the cross anyways? It's been 2000 years and evil still continues to grow. I completely agree with him. Many people have this belief that as humanity progresses, we'll become better people. But I'm sorry, that's just not happening. For every advance that we make towards good, as we expand on all the good, evil just advances more, and different ways of evil grow and form. Unfortunately, the weeds continue to grow with the wheat. Jesus' death and resurrection, in that moment, did not end evil. But what it did do was break the power of evil. And it told evil where it was going to head one day. You see, the end goal of evil is death, ultimately. Evil spoils, it harms, it breaks everything that is good down until it is dead and gone. And Jesus allowed evil to reach its full course in his body on the cross. But then Jesus broke the power of sin and death when he rose from the dead. Jesus proved that evil is powerless against his life and his resurrection. So now we have hope that God knows what he's doing with evil. And we have good reasons to wait for that glorious day when it'll finally arrive, when the evil will fully be vanquished. As Jonathan preached a few weeks ago, Psalm 119 reminds us that God can be trusted, that God gives us life that everything serves God, and that we belong to God. For these reasons, we can wait with strength and hope and comfort. And the great thing is, the cross doesn't just give us hope for the future. It also gives us power and an example for victory over evil today, right now. Through the cross, Jesus teaches us and empowers us to overcome evil through suffering love. Paul says this in Ephesians 5 verses 1 and 2, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And John also says this in 1 John 3.16, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. When the psalmist says that he loves the law and follows God's word, he's not following the generally accepted morality of our day. Our culture says, you know, you can do whatever you want. Go, just go do whatever you want, enjoy life, as long as you're not harming anyone. That's kind of the, the one supreme, unwritten law that our society embraces, Don't harm others, but you can do whatever else you want. And you know, actually, that's certainly an important part of God's law. We're not supposed to harm others. But that's a negative law. It's it's a law that tells us what not to do. But God's law is actually filled with so many more things that push us to do things, to act, to go out. Things like love your neighbor as yourself. Take care of widows and orphans. Feed the poor. Welcome and love foreigners and strangers. All these things are examples of ways that God is calling us to go out and do things, not just wait for things to not happen to us or whatever. And Jesus, he even pushes the law even deeper in the New Testament when he says, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And especially when Jesus pushes, Forgive others. As you have been forgiven. As I said on the cross, Jesus was able to say to his murderers, Father, forgive them. Jesus forgave them on the cross. And it's by that power of being able to forgive that not only does Jesus release those people to find healing and joy in life, but Jesus releases himself to not be weighted down and burdened by anger, vengeful thoughts, bitterness. Jesus finds freedom in forgiveness, and he offers that to us as well. None of these things are easy. They all cost us. If we're truly following God's word, it will lead us to love sacrificially. And that is how we join God in the renewal of all things. By actively going out and following God's word. By joining in the psalmist and praying for deliverance from evil. And by working together as a community, praying for God's wisdom and creativity to know how we can join with him in this great cleanup project that he started with Jesus on the cross. Evil still exists in the world today it will be here until god finally makes it right in the next life but until then our actions here on earth are not for nothing we can still experience victory over evil in our own personal lives and we can also see evil vanquished in uh, our friends lives in our communities in our countries as we work together with god To show people the love and forgiveness that he has on offer for us. To pray for deliverance. To work creatively together as a community for freedom and shalom. It's going to require suffering love on our part. But it is so worth it. And we are empowered by Christ to make this a reality. I'm going to leave you now with this quote from N.T. Wright. as sort of our benediction for today. We are promised that God will make a world in which all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. A world in which forgiveness is one of the foundation stones and reconciliation is the cement which holds everything together. And we are given this promise not as a matter of whistling in the dark, not as something to believe even though there is no evidence, but in and through Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection and in and through the Spirit through whom the achievement of Jesus becomes a reality in our world and in our lives. Amen. All right. Well, I hope that uh, the sermon finds you well and look forward to uh, gathering together with you on Sunday. As always, i have some discussion questions for you to think through, to pray through before we get uh, to our Sunday Zoom meeting. I'm not going to... um, Ask all these questions on Sunday, but definitely uh, want you to consider them and pray for, pray through them before we get together. So the first question is: What evil are you waiting and crying out for God to dispose of? You know, there's could be something personal in your life, uh, something that you personally struggle with, or maybe it's something that's happening to somebody that you know, or maybe it's a a, a grander thing, something bigger that's happening in in our city or in our country in our world. What evil are you waiting and crying out for God to dispose of? Second question: Have you or how have you experienced Christ's victory over evil in your life? Now, what are some examples of times when when God's love, forgiveness, uh, healing has invaded your life and you've seen evil uh been yeah, vanquished? That's that's my question. Okay, and the third question is: who do you know who is actively and creative? creatively joining God in transforming evil for good in this world. I'm always looking to hear creative stories, um, inspiring stories, new stories of ways that Christians around the world are working with God to transform evil into good. So I'm wondering, do you have any stories? Is there something that you personally do in your life? It could be something small. It doesn't have to be something big. Or do you know uh, someone in your circle of friends or maybe you've heard stories around the world? I'd love to hear these different stories of how God is using us to actively transform evil for good in this world. So that's the uh, the end of the sermon and look forward to worshiping with you and gathering together with you this Sunday. Blessings upon you.